everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and this pod is my way of telling you about all the stuff that affects our health and lives as parents and families that I couldn't cram into that book. Over the past few weeks, we've been having some tough conversations about race, healthcare, and parenthood, and I've found them to be enlightening, humbling, and inspiring. And like any great conversation, they leave us with so much more to talk about, right? Keep this conversation going, people. It's important. And between the bunch of us, maybe we can figure some of this stuff out and help other people learn to be more aware, sensitive, and tolerant, just as a starting point, and ultimately to celebrate what brings us together, what sets us apart, and the beauty of this holy human mess we're all making. That's what I hope. Anyway, we have a guest today who I've known for several years and whose work is inspiring beyond anything I've ever known. We're going to get Jenny Joseph on the phone in just a few minutes. But first, let's answer an email. We haven't done that in a few weeks. Oh, and just as an FYI, if you hear a baby screaming in the background of this recording, it's my neighbor's two-year-old who is having one heck of a good tantrum. I have no idea what it's about, but nobody can throw down a tantrum like a two-year-old can. In my family, we used to call those grandma hissy fits. She's having a good one. So my apologies if you can hear that back there, but what you gonna do? Okay, now to our emails. Hello, Jeannie. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I really enjoy all the topics you cover. One subject in particular that's piqued my interest and pulled my heartstrings is when you've talked about obstacles in maternal health in countries where proper medical attention is not readily available. I would love some more information and resources to educate myself and hopefully others. Thank you for all the knowledge you share. Livy. Oh, hi, Livy. I love your name. I have a daughter whose name is Olivia, and most of the time we call her Liv or Livy. Yes, I can definitely point you in the direction of more information about maternal health on a global level. Um, you know, if you're looking for some more information on a national level, I really think Planned Parenthood is a good place to start. Um, but both nationally and internationally, everymothercounts.org is doing amazing work in this area. I wrote for this nonprofit organization for years. And they're specifically addressing barriers that prevent women from accessing health care, like transportation, lack of supplies, lack of trained staff, and you know other things like that. So go on over to everymothercounts.org and you'll learn more. Then head on over to care.org and learn about the work they're doing around maternal health and reproductive health that can lift women out of poverty care.org. And if you want to get involved in advocacy and lobbying around some of these issues, go to careaction.org. That's a, a sister organization to care that includes several hundred thousand citizen advocates from around the country and a whole training curriculum for how to do it. From there, you'll find lots of organizations and information that'll provide a solid education. Um, so thanks, Livy. I hope that you know, gives you a starting point. Pretty much anywhere you decide to plug in, that's where you start, and then you'll find more resources from there. We'll be back with more in just a second. 
We're back. Let's see. We're going to answer another listener email later in this episode, but I'm hoping our guest today will help me answer it. Jenny Joseph is a British-trained midwife, a women's health advocate, the founder and executive director of Common Sense Childbirth, and the creator of The JJ Way. She moved to the United States in 1989 and began a journey that has culminated in the formation of an innovative maternal child health care system, markedly improving birth outcomes for women in Central Florida. So let's get Jenny on the line. Hello, it's Jenny. Hi, Jenny. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am doing really well. It's been a little while since you and I have spoken. I've missed you. Yes, same here. (laughs) Time flies, though, when you're getting a lot of things done. I know it. I know it. We're going to talk about the things that you're getting done, too. But just in terms of placing you so that our listeners know where you are, you're in Florida, right? I am. I'm in Orlando and loving that, you know, Florida weather. I'm so thankful. I've been here actually 28 years now, so I'm very much used to it. Well, I am um, sort of at the far corner of the country from you in the Pacific Northwest and in Portland, and we just got our sunshine this week. We're all just absolutely giddy with delight (laughs) that the clouds have parted and the sun is out. All hail. I'm so glad to hear that I'm not the one over there. That reminds me of English weather, and I'm done with that. Thank you. (laughs) I know it. I know it. it. But every year at this time, when the sun comes out, I remember why it is that I live in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. because it's just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the year, I whine about it. You know, I'm... Well, Jenny, I want to read just a little snippet of your bio work description and then start asking you some questions. Sound good? Yes, very good. Okay. Jenny Joseph is a British-trained midwife, a women's health advocate, the founder and executive director of Common Sense Childbirth Incorporated, and the creator of The JJ Way. She moved to the United States in 1989 and began a journey that has culminated in the formation of an innovative maternal child health care system, markedly improving birth outcomes for women in Central Florida. That's the short story. But now the big question is, Jenny, who are you and what do you do? Wow. Well, that is a big question. Um, I think that, you know, at this point in my life, who I am is someone who is fighting hard for change or if not even transformation in childbearing in the United States of America. So as you pointed out, I started out in England. I was born and raised there, educated there. My family emigrated to England from the West Indies back in the 50s. And um, so I grew up um with that culture and i grew up understanding midwifery as a normal thing to do and i came here thinking that it was the same i had no idea i think a lot of people around the rest of the world don't realize that in america midwifery is not quite the norm Um, it might even be considered fringe still even at this point and that physicians obstetricians take care of normal pregnant women and um, healthy pregnant women at that so i have really become this person who 
would like to see that change. Not that everybody necessarily should have a midwife, but that we might want to look at birth and childbearing, pregnancy, postpartum in the United States from a more holistic approach, from a more normal life event approach, approach and that women and babies wouldn't suffer as much as they do here. We mm -hmm. suffer quite poorly from outcomes, um, low birth weight babies, premature babies, babies that don't survive, mothers that are sick in pregnancy, mothers that don't survive. Um, quite surprisingly, in a developed nation, in fact, the most developed nation on this earth, that we are suffering um, in childbearing. So I would say at this point, who I am is a stand for transformation of childbearing in America. Ooh, dang. Jenny, you just wrapped that up so tight. I love that. I admire a really good line like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you and I have spoken many times over the past five years or so, um, mostly back when I was writing for Every Mother Counts. And I think actually we've only met one time in person, and that was last year or the year before when we actually ran into each other um, in the halls up on Capitol Hill. That's right. Yes, we were running around in the hall. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I was lobbying for care. Yeah. yeah. And you were, who, who were you lobbying, lobbying for? I was there with Health Connect One, uh, an amazing organization out of Chicago, a community doula organization and um, national advocates for the doula work and for bringing, um, you know, options for women who are at risk for poor outcomes. An amazing organization. And I was there as part of their um, lobbying efforts, as well as um, presenting at one of their conferences. Well, I think... You know, I don't remember exactly what my advocacy issues were that year, but very often when I'm up on the hill lobbying for care, I'm lobbying for, you know, some sort of reproductive or maternal health bill. And, you know, it's just kind of interesting how many of us are going at this big task of trying to make you know, women's and maternal health care a better experience for women locally, nationally, globally. You know, it's, it, there are a lot of us going at it. There are. And I think that we have to really take solace from the fact that, you know, with this much interest at this point, we have hope for change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think in the last perhaps 10 years, it has become more galvanized. We have become more aware. And, and much of the work is to get the awareness out to the general public because I think um, majority of women and families who are unaware are left you know, victim to these situations. The more information and the more we can educate, um, the safer women and families are. And so this, this bigger work that has been more global, I think, up to now, is now becoming more focused on the United States as an issue. Um, I think where before perhaps we didn't even want to acknowledge that there was an issue, that there was nothing wrong here. We're doing just fine, thank you very much. So I'm encouraged. And again, without hope, I don't think any of us could keep going. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of my my listeners are new to the concept of, you know, the kind of maternal health care inequities that we're talking about. So I'm wondering if you can get, help me give kind of a streamlined, nutshell version of what women are facing and, you know, yes. your approach to how to help them. Well, I think across the board, we just have to acknowledge that we rank very poorly as far as maternal health 
and maternal outcomes in childbirth. So that is to say that a pregnant woman um, in America has more risk of having a a near miss experience really meaning that she may be ill enough in her pregnancy that she might die or of dying than perhaps women who are delivering babies in Croatia for example right. um, so this is one of the things that has been quite um, a real wake-up call that our maternal mortality we rank around 60th in the world I believe right now the mm -hmm. other piece that's really important to stress is the infant mortality in the the sick and premature infants we also rank very poorly in that um, arena our babies are being born too soon premature born before the 37th week of pregnancy they're being born too small weighing less than five and a half pounds or if they are alive when they are born that they are at risk of being lost before their first birthday we rank poorly on both counts mother and baby um, the data has been like this for over the last decade the mother's rates are increasing which is very scary how is it that in this nation it you are getting more and more women who are more at risk for succumbing during pregnancy and birth this is a big problem and so where we assume that you know a healthy woman will just sail right through her pregnancy um, we can't make that assumption any longer we do know for sure that women of color black women specifically Native American women as well, are three to four times at risk than white women as far as poor pregnancy outcomes. We know that their babies are two to three times more at risk for poor outcomes. Something's wrong. And yeah. so I've really worked hard to get those statistics into the public domain. Sometimes I just simply say, did you know? two to three times as many babies or two, three to four times as many women of color, black women, African-American women, are going to be in some jeopardy having a baby in this country. And rather than give the exact amounts of the percentages or how many per hundred thousand, where people get a little overwhelmed with those kinds of figures, just keep it simple. So mm -hmm. this is the absolute truth. This is not something that I'm making up or exaggerating. This is mm -hmm. happening now, today. We are losing women as we speak. At least two women die every day in pregnancy and birth around the world, um, in the United States rather, I'm sorry. And that's outrageous, outrageous. And so, you know, once you present this information, we're hoping that most people will ask the next question is, why? Why is it happening like this? Exactly. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of reasons, there are a lot of theories out there, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of people doing a lot of study, a lot of work going on right now. There are maternal mortality review boards, there are infant mortality review boards. They're gathering the data and they're trying to answer those questions. And there are various questions. Some of them are to do with lack of access. Much of it is to do with lack of access to quality care. Um, as a midwife, for me, quality obstetric care looks like the kind of care which centers the mother, the woman in the middle of the care. She is the main driver of the care. She gets all the information and knowledge that she needs to make her good decisions and she gets access to the quality of providers, the best providers for her situation. That's how you get quality care. I think that's lacking. I think we have these big massive hospital systems that do their best to provide the basis of the care but then somewhere along the line we have 
systems of interventions that may be causing more jeopardy than we realize. We have physician practices that are overwhelmed. We have litigious situations where doctors are nervous of being sued and so more likely to overdo than underdo. We have big groups of practices where the women are seen very quickly, move through like cattle, if you will. Um, we have the opposite where um, people just can't get access at all. They're uninsured or they're underinsured or they have a type of Medicaid that nobody wants to take. We have women who are in rural situations where there are no obstetricians or midwives for county after county. You're traveling, you know, hundreds of miles to receive care. Um, we have the opposite in urban areas where, you know, in a city, uh, low income areas, what I call the materno toxic zones, areas where women are literally in jeopardy just because they're pregnant or trying to parent or breastfeed a young baby. These all come together and compound. But I will tell you honestly, Jean, one of my biggest concerns and one of the reasons I personally believe these things are happening, these statistics are there, I believe that it's because of the institutionalized racism, the institutionalized classism and sexism that is a staple of how we provide care, medical care in this country. Hallelujah, sister. You won't get any argument from me on that. Yeah. I think it, it is really reflective of how power is distributed in our country. Yes. And it really is a power. It's a power and control issue is what it came Yes, it is. And it has been historically. If yeah. we look at the history of how did we get here, we got here when we moved birth out of the home and into the hospital. Mm -hmm. We moved birth out of the home, sometimes for convenience, but also because money was being made. We yeah. had uh, an opportunity perhaps to try to have some power and control over a natural physiological process by maybe trying to manage when that process mm -hmm. should occur, how it should occur. There are many grandmothers and maybe even moms who can still remember the days of twilight sleep when mm -hmm. women were put to sleep at the time of deliveries so that as they pushed or wouldn't push rather that their baby was delivered by forceps a big episiotomy was cut that's the cutting the opening of the vagina to enlarge it and to apply forceps to the baby's head and literally drag the baby out when we began to interfere with the process of birth and of course the intention was probably to make it better safer or you know have more more power over it we've also then eradicated the safety that was inherent in birth yes people did die back in the old days but it was from infection it was from lack of resources now what we have is a, a complete overuse of the resources and so we now have come full circle because the power has changed in that women go to the hospital hoping and hope, you know expecting to be taken care of and managed well without realizing that some of the very things that are part of that management are detrimental to their health. And they have no way to really have any self-advocacy or self-determination in that. So because let me give you an example. I'm sorry? Because the system is stacked against them. Indeed. So let's say, for example, your obstetrician tells you that you should have an induction. Um, they may have some good thoughts in their mind as to why that should be but you're not really informed enough or able to have um, say in that decision and sometimes not always but sometimes along with that instruction that the induction is the next best thing to do you're also there's a little bit of an intimation that 
because you want a healthy baby, right? So, you know, when you have things presented in a way that you're not really sure that you want to say anything other than, yes, please, of course, I want to have a healthy baby, then you end up sort of going along. So as an example, an induction without any medical need or necessity is actually an intervention that is more harmful than good. Yet majority of women are still faced with that question at some point in their pregnancy. Similarly, we've seen the rise of cesarean sections to the point that one in three women are having a cesarean. This is only because of intervention. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as the minuscule, teeny tiny American pelvis. It doesn't exist. There is no reason why in this nation, this many women need to have surgery to deliver their children. This is not matched anywhere else in the world. It's, it's, it's not, not a medical, medical reason. Not usually. So now we end up with this dilemma because in order to access care at all, you have to agree that the the people that provide the care are really, they really do have your best interest at heart and they're doing the right thing by you. Mm -hmm. Yet, here we are, we are faced with these statistics year in and year out. They come from somewhere. So I'm not trying to cast any blame or any aspersions on anybody's practice or anyone's way of being or any system or any hospital or physician group or nurse midwife or licensed midwife group. I'm just saying overall, the system is broken. And all of us that are aware and are trying to provide good, safe care and support and encourage women and families to the fullest of their health are stuck inside the same system that's broken. And I'm not sure if any of us have a really good plan as to how to unbreak it or even a willingness to do that. There's a little bit of a sense of let's just keep rolling and do the best we can. Especially now, you know, with the rollout of the new draft of the Affordable Care or the Obama Repeal Act. The political will has a part to play too. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the condoning of, well, these statistics have been here like this for a while. We're not sure. We don't know. That piece is also important because what it's saying is that um, we're helpless to fix it or change it. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Not at all. We can change it and very easily, in fact, quite cheaply. We don't have to spend a whole lot of money because one thing that has stood over the centuries as far as obstetric care and support has gone It has been the fact that the more personalized the care, the more interactive the care, the more um, collaborative the care, the safer it has been. And that's why for all these centuries, women supporting each other has worked pretty well. Yeah, all in all. So we do know how to fix it. We're just not willing to change our system to to match that way and that's where i think we need to start working first um you you know you mentioned earlier that you came to the u.s from england where the maternal health care is very very different and i think that there's been enough study now and enough discussion in the maternal health care community around the world that a maternal health care system that is similar excuse me to um what women have in England is pretty effective and delivering pretty good results. And a big part of that is because it is a system that is primarily run by midwives. Yes. And that, yeah. Why don't I, you go ahead and, and describe no. this? 
Well, I think that we should say that it's really the system that's around the West, rest of the world. It's not just mm -hmm. England. The European model is pretty much in place around the rest of the world. Where midwives are the primary providers of care for pregnant women, the outcomes are different. And what a midwife brings, along with her skills, of course, in terms of how she can um, manage normal cases and, and healthy cases, what she also brings, though, or he brings, is an ability to relate to the patient in that more personable way. The patient is centered. The patient is the reason for the care and um, is a participant in the care. When you set a system up the opposite, where you have physicians who are really better set to be surgeons and are trained to do emergency type of work, they can't really center the patient that same way because they're looking at emergency type of care. So mm -hmm. in, in America, obstetrics is a specialty, but so is cardiology, mm -hmm. so is neonatology. These are specialties. In Europe and much of the rest of the world, obstetrics belongs to the midwives until there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we have a complete flip. So 80% of women are attended to by midwives in Europe. And here, 80% or even 90% of women are attended to by obstetricians. And that's where a lot of the issues begin because an obstetrician taking care of a normal, healthy, pregnant woman and delivering a normal, um, you know, straightforward um, vaginal birth is like having um, a, um, you know, pediatric neurosurgeon um, babysitting the toddler. Like, yeah. I've heard that analogy. I think it was Marsden Wagner who came up with that one, but I think it's marvelous because it really speaks to how crazy is this? Yeah. yeah. Now... Along with that system of care in, in terms of using midwives is that it is um, more woman-centered and you know having that understanding of women from that perspective and across the board. I mean, I've been doing this work for 36 years now, Jean, and I haven't seen it any other way. It hasn't changed. <laughs> it just hasn't no. changed. The no, women are asking the same questions they asked me when I was 20 years old as you yeah. know, a student midwife. They, they have the same needs, the same ways of delivering. Um, left alone, they find their positions. They manage their pain. They cry their tears. They offload their emotions. They, you know, nothing changed in 36 years of practice. It's the exact same. Yeah. So how come the outcome can't be the same? This is my question. This is what drives me. So it's not that a midwife is the only person who could provide this type of care. Physicians could provide, and many I'm sure still want to provide this type. This is why they came into the field in the first place. Yeah. But they are thwarted because the systems don't allow. Money has to be made, commodity of, the commodity of birth has to be taken care of. Like it's how many widgets can we get through this hospital? How much revenue can be produced? How many, um, you know, surgeries or how many things can we do that will help us maintain the bottom line? And rightly so, because hospitals are businesses, right? right. So right. not only in other countries, we use midwifery for the main provider of care, but where there's universal health care or access to care without any impediment, the women are healthier, the babies are healthier. Right. All of because these things are part of this problem. Yeah, it's not treated as a business entity first. 
No, and I mean, maybe it should be. I'm sure, you know, as the National Health Service struggles on, there's that thought that now is time to stop this and, you know, we need a different way. And I get that. I mean, this model is not doing well economically. Mm -hmm. I agree. But I look at health as a human right. And of course, in my world and in my field, I can't help but look at the two patients that are in my care as deserving of that care simply because they exist. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the National Perinatal Task Force. Tell me a little bit about it. A couple of years ago, I realized that one of the things that's been exceptionally hard for me as a provider in this country has been that I feel a little unsupported, I'll be honest. I feel like I'm sort of this one lone voice, you know, crying out in the wilderness. And I feel like a lot of people, a lot of women especially, that have made it their business to support women in maternity care and in the perinatal world are also feeling the same way. And it, it felt particularly poignant for the women who are working with um, African-American women, Native American women, low-income women, women who are basically the statistics, those women that we can count in the statistics who are disproportionately of color, that the people who have a heart and an interest in supporting them particularly, Mm -hmm. they in turn needed the support. They in turn needed the acknowledgement. It's a wretchedly miserable road to be working in this environment and feeling so frustrated, so annoyed, so overwhelmed when you see things happening where you don't know that anyone else really gets it and sees what you're seeing or is interested in helping change it. So the task force was set up to say, where are you? Are you out there? What are you doing? How are you doing it? How are you coping? What do you need? Do you need a listen in the ear? Do you need a place to offset what's going on? Um, How are you funded? Are you finding funds? Do you need training? Do you need support? And so the task force is literally there to support the supporters. But one thing that we all have in common, and there are about 35 of us listed on the website right now, 35 different groups who are in different states around this nation, um, that what we found that we all have in common is that we are fighting on the front line, doing what we can do with little or nothing. You know, some of us are midwives, some of us have clinics, some of us are doulas, some of us are childbirth educators, lactation educators, postpartum supporters, perinatal um, mental health workers, people who are saying, I'm already in action because I can't stand the statistics and I'm not going to sit by and let this happen in my community. These people, we've come together and said, I see you, I recognize you. Let's put our information on the same website so everybody can see it. Everyone can know that there are others out there fighting alongside. And we get together, we do phone conference calls, we share our information, and we are basically saying, whoever um, isn't aware, let's share knowledge. Whoever is aware, let's invite them to join our group so that we can strengthen and continue forward. There is nothing else that we can do at this point except for say that the problem exists and that we're really standing with the women who are suffering and we are trying to make a difference. I want to give you a story real quick, Jean, of a patient who came into my office yesterday. We run a clinic here in Orlando. for uh, We do an outreach clinic and I also run a birth center for people who choose natural birth. 
but I was running the Spanish language clinic yesterday morning and a woman presented to the clinic who had been sent from the hospital to my clinic. She was discharged from the hospital. She was at the ER because she was bleeding and um, she had, she wasn't sure how far pregnant she was. Certainly she was still in the first trimester, but she'd been bleeding all week with some pain lower down in the, in the pelvic area. She had a history of a previous pregnancy where she had an ectopic. She went to the hospital, she's uninsured, and um, she was sent, seen at the ER and told, you're having a miscarriage, but we can't help you. She never received any ultrasound. She never received any lab work. She was just told, you're miscarrying. You need to go and you know finish your miscarriage. So she came to me yesterday morning. She was in such pain, she could barely walk. We took one look at her. We got her situated and we sent her down to a different hospital. She had an ectopic. Mm. Which could be deadly. It is absolutely deadly. Now, yeah. he only got through my clinic because we have a no one turned away policy. The hospital sent her over to me because of they know we have the same no one turned away policy. But she came from the ER and this is what I want to point out. This woman was of um, Hispanic descent. She, this was a Spanish language specific clinic. We're the only one that runs a Spanish language clinic. But the point was that because we're known in our community to not turn anyone away, this is where people kind of end up. We're like a safety net. Mm -hmm. Yet I'm a midwife and I can't do high risk obstetrics. Again, if we had not been able to get this woman in and seen, she wouldn't have been able to get that referral to another hospital who were able to take care of her or willing to take care of her. Let me put it that way. Right. But you were right. Her life was in jeopardy and she would have been one of those statistics because had that tube burst before she got help, she would have died. Yeah. And it had to do with race, language, language. insurance. Insurance. Lack of access. Even in plain sight, there's lack of access and we're in the United States of America. Something right. is wrong here. Right. That's what why we have a perinatal task force because sometimes you just gotta get that off your chest. You just got to talk to someone who understands. You just have to say, okay, I'm going to open this clinic tomorrow, even if we're unfunded. This is why we have the task force. I encourage people who are interested to go to perinataltaskforce.com and see what we're doing and see why we need to do it. And understanding yeah. that, help us. We need to build awareness. This has to stop. Okay, everybody. We are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. So I had a chance to interview Ginger Breedlove a couple months back about the um, Mother's Day uh, demonstration in Washington. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you go? Wait, did you, did. you purchase? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. I it so wanted to be there, but I was going the following week for something else and couldn't, couldn't come. Well, it was really great, and I was very pleased. Um, we had a great lineup of, of speakers, and everybody was very passionate and was able to just really share, you know, what was on their heart. Um, again, you know, in this effort of making awareness, bringing awareness to this problem, it was really a smart way to to begin. Um, hopefully, an annual event, March for Moms. Again, centering the moms, having it be about the moms, the issues. Um, that mothers are facing in America 
are not only through their pregnancy but postpartum as well. There's a complete lack of support for postpartum care. The working situation, so many women have to get back to work too soon. They don't have maternity leave. So many of the dads don't have maternity leave. So we were able in about three hours to just really hit on as many of these points as we could um, in terms of how not supporting mothers is so very detrimental to their overall health um, in terms of the maternity care or lack of access to that care, in terms of these outcomes, in terms of the postpartum support or lack thereof, in terms of their babies, in terms of breastfeeding support, and so on. So it was a really important event. And I'm excited because there was buy-in from major agencies, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American College of Nurse Midwives, you know, you name it. I mean, the March of Dimes, major organizations came together for this March on Mums, uh, for Mums, and I think it was really powerful and a great start to the work that needs to be done as far as raising awareness. Every Mother Counts also participated, and of course, you know, um, the work that they do has not only been on the global stage, but they have brought the um, situation um, home, front and center, clearly in America, and have worked really hard to get that word out that we have a problem right here in this country too. Yeah, yeah. So what do you see happening for American women going forward in light of what's happening, in light of what you see right now? What do you think is gonna happen going forward? I think that we're going to be able to engage more um, consumers to understand what they need to know about having safe pregnancies and to be able to advocate for themselves, whether it's by saying, no, thank you, I don't want an induction. Um, I don't know if I need a cesarean, let me find out how things work for me during my labor. I understand the value of having a doula support me during my labor. Oh, I'm gonna choose a midwife because I'd like to have a home birth. Or there's a birth center in my neighborhood that I'd like to access, let me find out more information. I think the more we can share the options that are really already out there and encourage people to be brave enough, if you will, to, to, to try them and to understand what the difference would be from using these different types of access points to what they're used to, to having the physicians be willing to share more information about their data as they enter a practice. What is your cesarean rate? What do you do in this case or that case? Having people feel empowered to even ask these questions, uh, modeling for them how to ask these questions, providing support groups for them so that they feel strong enough. Looking for the baby-friendly hospital in your area. What does a baby-friendly hospital mean? Why is breastfeeding so important? Why is support postpartum so important? Why is it that I need to have um, you know, uh, an extended maternity leave. What's wrong with going back to work three weeks after I had a baby? This is the kind of stuff we need to get out there. And people don't have access like they used to to childbirth education. They don't have access to classes the way they used to be available. It's much harder to do these kinds of things. So we need to use our social media. We need to use the, the internet. We need to be more savvy about how we educate and who's holding that space for this transformation of childbirth that I'm talking about. I think this is the work that we need to do for our women and the women that we care about, but also for ourselves as the providers of care. We also need this education and this change in our thinking. Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's about us being accountable. It's up to us as maternal health care educators and nurses and midwives 
um, to educate you know other women that we know about their options and choices. Yes. I get um, a lot of email from women who have, uh, you know, they've had previous experiences in their pregnancies or they're hearing information that is really confusing to them. And I'm wondering what you think about helping me respond to a listener's email. Of course, no. Okay. Okay, great. Um, she writes, Hi, Jeannie. Love your podcast. I discovered it about halfway through my pregnancy, and it made me feel much more prepared to give birth. I'm now the mother of a beautiful and happy nine-week-old baby boy and couldn't love him more. However, something happened toward the end of my pregnancy that has me terrified for my next one. We want more kids within the next few years. Because I have chronic hypertension, which was okay during pregnancy, I started receiving weekly biophysical ultrasounds. During my 34th week, they discovered my umbilical cord had become severely restricted with an SD ratio of 5, and they said 99% of cords performed better than mine. I was then given twice-weekly biophysical ultrasounds until I was induced at 39 weeks to be sure the cord hadn't stopped working or begun to reverse flow. On several occasions, I was told that I should be prepared to go to labor and delivery at my next appointment, only to be told I could carry longer. While I was never officially labeled with intrauterine growth restriction, I gave birth to a baby in the fifth percentile for weight. Prior to this cord issue, he was in the 50th percentile, so I have to believe he stopped growing the way he should. There was very little information I could find during this time. How common is this issue? Should I expect the same in my next pregnancy? The whole experience was scary and traumatic, and I'm so thankful we were able to go to essentially full term after weeks of bracing myself for a preemie. Thank you, Mary. That's a lot, isn't it? It is, and it. I'm not as familiar um, with that particular condition. Um, I don't know enough to speak intelligently to the part about the cord and the restriction. I do know a lot about the intrauterine growth restriction because one of the things that we've been able to do is to literally eradicate low birth weight babies from my practice. And my practice is full of women who are at risk for intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR as we call it. So one of the things that we found has been the more we can um, stay positive and support the mother, it seems the better she does. We don't have that technology where we are scanning or measuring or doing biophysical profiles weekly or twice weekly. We don't do that as midwives. But what we do is we measure the old fashioned way with, you know, how is the fundal height or the top of the uterus? We measure that growth by measuring from the pubic bone to the top of the uterus at every visit. If we see that lagging, then we go ahead and we start our regimen to support women who may be beginning to experience the intrauterine growth restriction. So that includes increasing their protein, increasing their fluids, resting more. If they're working, we try to encourage them to stop working, we get them off their feet. We do, of course, depend on the technology and we send them over to the obstetricians for some of those extra things, such as an ultrasound, measuring of the amniotic fluid, and so on. But we have seen our women be able to thrive and, you know, really supersede the impact of IUGR by this heavy duty emotional support, nourishment 
and flu, you know, increase in fluids. We've been able to do that. Now, again, I can't speak to the cord constriction or restriction in this case. That's an unusual case. But, you know, our response when there's a possibility of something being wrong with the baby is to go to the technology, is mm -hmm. to step up that level. So it's interesting to hear this email because it looks like they did exactly that, mm -hmm. yet still had a small baby. Right. And they, so, they loaded on all kinds of technology, twice a week, biophysical profiles, an right. induction, all kinds of things. And yet the baby was still small. So the question would have been, should they have brought that baby out earlier? Or did they do an amazingly spectacular job of getting that baby to 39 weeks anyway? I'm not sure of the answer again, because I can't speak to that. But I will tell you this, <coughs> the fear that is generated when we have situations out of the norm are... I think I'm just going to say a little bit exaggerated in the United States mm -hmm. to the point where that has the mother, the family on tenterhooks and just totally at their wits end mm -hmm. to the point that this young woman is pointing out that the next pregnancy, she's already worried about that and she hasn't even got there. Right. So understandably, because there really was something wrong and they were, you know, they were picked, that was picked up and that was wonderful. But I want to really just ask people to consider, and particularly this young mother, that when something does go wrong in, in an obstetric world, that there is technology to support it, but that with that technology should come peace of mind. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is what happened here. Mm -hmm. I think the technology added to the fear and trepidation, maybe on both parties, not just the mother and the family, but on the physician side as well. Sure. And so yeah. we've got this sort of interplay of negativity that overwhelms everybody. Mm -hmm. When she mentioned chronic hypertension, you notice that she said it was okay in the pregnancy. Right. And it really was because obviously they would check her blood pressure too and there wasn't any mention of the blood pressure being high. So you see how where there's a problem, you can still have it juxtaposed with the problem being managed. And yeah. I would love to see more work and more energy put towards, so let's all calm down now. And let's right. all stay in that place where we are going to be vigilant and with expectant management, but also knowing that everything's okay because we are being vigilant. So for right. her subsequent pregnancy, I really encourage her to, first of all, not buy into that this is going to happen twice in a row right. or even three right. times. It may never happen again. And to then be open to as that pregnancy unfolds and progresses, so everybody takes it in its reality, stays present to that pregnancy and manage that pregnancy from that way. She's very safely held. When technology is needed, she has access to it, mm -hmm. clearly. But yeah. I really believe, because we don't have access to technology because so many of our women are uninsured or unable to get care, yet our babies thrive. Our mm -hmm. babies go to term. The average baby is a healthy seven and a half pounds the average gestation is 39 weeks with women who are at risk for premature and low birth weight babies, just like she's described. So I feel that, you know, given the situation now, she knows what happened in that pregnancy. Stay open to the next one being completely different and we pray for completely normal, but manage it in real time rather than anticipating and worrying into the next pregnancy. Yeah. I like to call that a well-based pregnancy instead of a fear-based pregnancy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we have talked for a good long time, but I always like to ask my guests just a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. So how would you fill in the blank 
on this statement. Nobody ever told me that. Hmm. From the perspective of the mother, is that what you mean, Jean? Sure. Yeah. However you okay. want to answer that. You get to answer it any way you want. Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that. If you just do nothing, the baby will come out. (laughs) (laughs) Almost all the time. Right. Without fail. Yes. All right. Well, then our last question Mm -hmm. is this. Where are you in your life with motherhood? And again, answer it any way you want. Yes. Well, I'm a mother of a 31-year-old amazing young man, Hmm. and I'm a grandmother. And Hmm. I will tell you, grandmothering, hands down, is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. I mean, I am thrilled to pieces. I thought I had as much motherly love and abundance in having one healthy boy But this little boy, this little grandson of mine, who's about to turn eight tomorrow, he Hmm. has blown my world. It is like I had no clue what was coming. I am the most excited Mimi, as he calls me, um, in the world. And so for me, having been around mothering my whole entire adult life, I started midwifery at 19 years of age and I'm 58 now. And I'm still juiced up about motherhood and the work that I do. But I have to tell you, grandmothering, it's the bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jenny, this has been so lovely to talk to you. I really appreciate your taking the time and joining this conversation. Of course. My pleasure. Yeah, cool. Well, we will talk again down the road. All right. Okay. Bye, Jenny. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Our guest today was Jenny Joseph. You can learn more about her at commonsensechildbirth.org. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me, jean at jeanfaulkner, and that is J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner, and please buy the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. Also, leave me a kind review wherever you download this podcast and share the heck out of this with your friends and network. Let's grow the conversation, shall we? Oh, and yes, we are accepting new sponsors. Email me if you're interested. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.